This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Management of the Patient with a Bidirectional Glen by Dr. Melissa Jones. Uh, my name is Melissa Jones. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And today we will briefly uh, discuss the uh, bidirectional Glen patient and postoperative management. So the objectives of this, of this talk are to briefly describe the history and the purpose of the bidirectional Glen procedure. We'll review relevant preoperative data discuss postoperative physiology and complications, and review the challenges associated with mechanical support. So briefly, a history of the cavopulmonary anastomosis. Dr. Carlin was an Italian surgeon who first described the anastomosis in eight dogs. Uh, there were surgeons in Italy, the United States, and Russia who continued to work on this procedure. Dr. Shoemaker in the United States described two patients um, who underwent a cavopulmonary anastomosis in 1954, and one had transposition of the great arteries and the other had truncus arteriosus. Both had elevated pulmonary vascular resistance and unfortunately both died. In 1956, Dr. Michalkin reports 24 cases of the cavopulmonary anastomosis in patients in Russia. One of them had pulmonary atresia, the other th 23 had tetralogy of Fallot, and 21 out of 24 of those patients survived, suggesting that this was a potential uh, benefit to patients with cyanotic disease. In 1958, Dr. Glenn completed the first successful cavopulmonary anastomosis on a seven-year-old with transposition of the great arteries, and that patient survived. So the bidirectional Glenn is now the standard second stage of the, of the single ventricle palliation pathway. It's an anastomosis between the superior vena cava and the right pulmonary artery. This physiology provides completely passive pulmonary blood flow. It reduces the volume load on the single ventricle. It preserves the myocardial and AV valve function. It improves distribution of pulmonary blood flow and the growth of the pulmonary vascular bed. And it provides a predictable QPQS. It's oftentimes a very stable circulation for high-risk single ventricle patients. These two diagrams illustrate the fact that there are many variations of single ventricle anatomy that will undergo a bidirectional Glenn procedure. On the left is a patient with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and on the right is a patient with truncus arteriosus and complete AV canal with bad AV valve disease. So what is the information that we need to gather before uh, the bidirectional Glenn procedure? So we want to know about the pulmonary artery pressure and anatomy, the pulmonary vascular resistance, the condition of the aortic arch, specifically if the patient had a Norwood as a stage one procedure. We want to know the function of the AV valves, the caval anatomy, the ventricular compliance, and pulmonary vein sets. The goal of postoperative management is to reduce the transpulmonary gradient. Important cardiopulmonary interactions to consider are the effects of positive pressure ventilation and spontaneous breathing. Spontaneous breathing leads to negative intrathoracic pressure, a rise in the RA transmural pressure, and a decrease in the right atrial pressure improving pulmonary and systemic venous return. Positive pressure ventilation, on the other hand, creates positive intrathoracic pressure, a decrease in the right atrial transmural pressure, and a rise in the right atrial pressure, decreasing pulmonary and systemic venous return. Maintaining low atrial pressure is important to promoting systemic and pulmonary venous return and optimizing hemodynamics.
This slide illustrates a patient uh, that was extubated shortly after returning from the operating room. On the x-axis is time and the y-axis is the NEARS monitoring. You can see that after the patient was extubated, they had a rise in their NEARS, um, suggesting improved oxygen delivery. This is a study out of China that looked at 24 patients after the bidirectional GLEN procedure. They used standard monitoring plus cerebral and mesenteric NEARS and ultrasound monitoring of the ascending aorta to derive the cardiac index. They looked at three specific time points, 30 minutes prior to extubation, 30 minutes after extubation, and 12 hours after extubation. The top two, the top two graphs depict the uh, cerebral and mesenteric NEARS. You can see that after extubation at points two and three, the, the NEARS rise. The graph on the lower left shows the central venous pressure after extubation, which as you can see, falls. The graph on the bottom right shows the cardiac index, which also rises after extubation. Cyanosis is one of the common postoperative problems after a bidirectional glen. One simple way to think about the potential etiology of cyanosis or treatment interventions to um, treat cyanosis after a bidirectional glen procedure is to think about the blood flow that makes up the aortic sac. So we must consider uh, a low mixed venous sac, potentially from anemia, increased oxygen consumption, or low cardiac output. Another consideration is pulmonary vein desaturation. We also must consider that there is potential for a restrictive atrial septum that's precluding oxygenated blood from getting to the right side of the heart and out to the body. Uh, there is a potential for decreased pulmonary blood flow, which may be the result of elevated pulmonary vascular resistance, anatomic obstruction, obstruction to the bidirectional glen, poor ventricular function, or AV valve regurgitation. Finally, we must consider VV collaterals, collaterals that bypass the lungs and go directly to the heart from the venous system. We know that PVR is lowest at FRC, so an anesthetic plan that allows for early extubation is key. Premature extubation in an oversedated patient could, uh, could lead to atelectasis and therefore a rise in PVR and poor hemodynamics. On the other end of the spectrum is the patient who must stay intubated. And if a patient must stay intubated, then minimizing the mean airway pressure will help to improve hemodynamics and oxygenation. In the, in the setting of a cyanotic uh, patient after a bidirectional GLEN procedure, allowing for permissive hypercarbia, mild permissive hypercarbia, might help to improve cerebral blood flow and then subsequently pulmonary blood flow. This is a patient who had a, a DKS along with their bidirectional gland procedure. The green line is the PO2 and the blue is the PCO2. The patient's PO2s were hovering around the high 20s. We allowed for, for a rise in the CO2 and and subsequently, the PO2 rose to the mid-30s. Another post-operative problem that we see often in the bidirectional glen is hypertension. The etiology is unclear, perhaps from pain, catecholamine surge, or intracranial hypertension. Perhaps this hypertension is needed for cerebral perfusion, or perhaps the ventricle is hyperdynamic after acute removal of volume load. It's important to remember that these patients are often not narcotic-naive. This is a recent review of the NPC-QIC database, characterizing factors that led to increased length of stay after the bidirectional GLEN procedure. They looked at 448 patients after the stage two. The pa those patients all went home after the stage one. The median length of stay was eight days. If there was 
an early Glenn between the ages of two to four months, then there was an additional three days of hospitalization noted. Factors associated with a prolonged length of stay in the, after the bidirectional Glenn was the need for a reoperation or cardiac cath after the stage two, the use of non-oral forms of nutrition, or the development of postoperative complications. Moving on to the challenges of mechanical support with a bidirectional Glenn, this is an evaluation of the ELSO database to characterize the differences between survivors and non-survivors of ECMO after the bidirectional Glenn procedure. They looked at 103 infants, for the, ranging in age from three months to one years. The predictors of mortality are listed. 41% of these patients survived to hospital discharge, and 14% of those had subsequent neurologic injury. We know there's not a lot of experience with bidirectional Glenn patients requiring bad support. This is a retrospective review of patients supported on the Berlin heart after a cable pulmonary shunt. They reviewed four patients and three out of four of those patients survived to transplant. What they found is that ventricular cannulation was facilitated by the excision of trabeculae and cords, often from the right ventricle. So in summary, the bidirectional gland reduces the volume load on the single ventricle and preserves myocardial function, AV valve function, and provides a predictable QPQS. Spontaneous breathing is best for reducing the transpulmonary gradient and optimizing hemodynamics. Cyanosis and hypertension are common postoperative problems. The anatomy of the bidirectional gland presents challenges for mechanical support. However, ECMO and VAD are both options if, if medical management is not enough. Thank you for listening to this talk, and I hope it's provided you with useful information to help you take care of patients after the bidirectional gland procedure. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.